Now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Claudia Kolker. Claudia Kolker is an award-winning reporter and the author of The Immigrant Advantage, What We Can Learn from Newcomers to America About Health, Happiness, and Hope. She has worked as the LA Times Houston Bureau Chief and as Deputy Director of Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Community Health Leaders and as a member of the Houston Chronicle Editorial Board, where she is currently a contributing editor. Please give a warm welcome to Claudia Kolker. Thanks so much for coming tonight. We are um, all delighted to be here. And I'm so happy that Socalo and Azteca have brought this town hall forum to Houston um, to talk about immigration reform and its implications for the city. It's very appropriate to do this in Houston, not only because Houston has so many immigrants who would be affected by it, but because the immigrants and the non-immigrants in Houston together have created a city that is changing and leading trends in the United States. And so we are redefining the American city, even as the legislation that may or may not pass may help to redefine us as well. And I just wanted to tell you a few of the details that make Houston distinctive and such an important part of the conversation in immigration reform. This is a city that is the number one refugee destination in the United States. It's now officially the most diverse city in the United States. And not coincidentally, it is the number one jobs magnet in the United States. And so Republican or Democrat, right or left, the people who do business in Houston are intensely aware that the lifeblood of this city is entrepreneurship, and entrepreneurs are largely fueled by immigrants or the families of immigrants. So this is a city that is pragmatic above all things. It is all about business. So Houston cares intensely and also is affecting the laws that will change or change or shape how we do business in the future. So we're very glad to be here. I am so excited to be with these distinguished guests and looking forward to what they have to say about the changes that may or may not occur in Washington. Uh, the first of our guests uh, at, uh, at the end is Macarena Hernandez. She has written extensively about U.S. Latino issues while covering South Texas and Northern Mexico for the San Antonio Express News. She's been an editorial columnist um, for the Dallas Morning News and for publications including the New York Times. She is currently the Victoria Advocate Endowed Professor in Humanities and teaches in the Communications Department at University of Houston, Victoria. Next, we have Tony Payan, who is a Baker Institute Scholar for Immigration and Border Studies with the Latin America Initiative at Rice University. He is an Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Texas at El Paso, and he also serves on the graduate faculty at the Universidad Autónoma de Ciudad Juárez. His research focuses on the U.S.-Mexico border, including border governability and illegal cross-border flows. And finally, we have Angela Blanchard. She is president and CEO of Neighborhood Centers, Inc., the largest human services organization in Texas, and it is ranked as one of the top 1% of charitable groups in the nation. She's participated in the Brookings Institution Metropolitan Leadership Council and the Clinton Global Initiative, where she has offered policymakers her ideas and analysis on the future of metropolitan areas and community revitalization. So welcome and really looking forward to hearing what you have to say. 
We're going to ask um, questions starting with uh, immigration reform that is right now on the boil in Washington, and then drilling down to the culture and business um, life of Houston, and um, what, how these things um, may or may not affect Houston in the long run. So we're going to start off with Tony. Could you tell us, as of today, what the state of play is in comprehensive immigration reform in Washington? And also, what is the Texas role in this national conversation, both at the state level and nationally? Yeah, I'll try to make some, some observations uh, in that regard. The, uh, uh, the paper that I presented at the immigration conference at the Baker Institute focused on Texas, uh, because Texas is sort of a paradox when it comes to immigration. It's a very diverse state, as you know. Uh, next to California, it is the largest state, um, and it is also the largest recipient of uh, immigrants. Uh, it's a very large population, and we're not only talking about the documented immigrants, we're talking about the undocumented immigrants. We have 1.7 million people in Texas that are uh, living in the state without documents. It's a lot of people, probably between four and 600,000 of them in Houston or the Houston metropolitan area, the 16 counties, it depends on how you count that. That's a lot of people living uh, among us without papers, but you see them every day and everywhere. Uh, Houston also has a kind of a very interesting culture. Uh, and uh, I've been in Houston for about a year now, and I noticed the difference between, say, El Paso and Houston. And I can tell you that Houston is a very welcoming city. It's an incredible city. Here, if you know how to work, if you know how to do something, if you get, roll up your sleeves and get to work and get to do stuff, you're welcome. And in that sense, it's sort of a paradoxical place because if you think about Texas being a red state uh, and the, Dem the Democrats have not won statewide office in many, many elections and Texas has gone Republican for a long time and we tend to associate the Republican Party with a more hostile attitude towards, the, um, towards immigrants in general and they pay a price for that but especially toward undocumented immigrants. Uh, and they're obviously paying a, pro a price for that. You would expect Texas to be a very hostile place for immigrants. And there are some counties, rural counties, red counties, there are, but not Houston. And that's the interesting thing. Houston also has a, a good delegation in the US Congress uh, because it's the largest city in Texas, the largest metropolitan area. So a lot of the Congress members in Texas understand the importance of immigration and they see it in their day-to-day -day lives in a city like Houston. That means that it <coughs> translates into a more moderate position towards immigration. And when I examined the legislative proposals in the Texas uh, House and Senate in 2009 and 2011, many of the more punishing bills that were being presented didn't stand a chance. Many of them didn't even make it out of committee and many of them were defeated. And in fact, the ones that passed were sort of interesting. One of them, for example, was to provide uh, interpretation services uh, in, in the medical profession, which it's sort of the opposite. You would think that they would close it. You would think that they would sort of think about, uh, about not providing those services and about English only in that kind of language and discourse, and it wasn't the case. So Texas has been kind of a moderating force. Somebody asked me, about what Luis Gutierrez, uh, a Congress member from Chicago, a left-leaning Democrat, was doing in South Texas because he was almost like in the on the campaign trail. 
And I said, well, he understands and he knows that there are many, many of those Texas Congress members that could vote for an immigration bill, and he knows that he has to come to Texas. If he's going to hit a middle-of-the-road delegation, it's probably going to be the Texas delegation that understands that. In that sense, I think it's a, it's a good sign. I think it's, a, it's a, an interesting place, uh, and it has a large delegation. So those votes are going to be needed if immigration reform is going, is going to be passed. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, when we talk about um, immigration reform and immigrants, it's almost as if there's one type of immigrant. In fact, they are the immigrant population of Texas is enormously diverse, economically diverse, and has some pretty different interests and agendas. And Macarena, I was wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about these different groups, what their interests and priorities are, and how um, they may be affected differently by an immigration reform. I think high-skilled uh, immigrants always feel overshadowed by low-skilled workers because a lot of the conversation in Washington really centers around the low-skilled worker. But for high-skilled workers, I, I think the depending on what gets passed, because everything's up in the air right now, I mean, one day we're cheering some portion of it up, and then the next day, you know, where our, our hopes are dashed. We were kind of lamenting this in the green room earlier that, you know, it's two weeks ago things looked really good, today not so much. But for high-skilled workers, uh, looking at what the Senate um, has, been, ha has passed, you're talking about more visas for high-skilled high workers. You're talking about possibly uh, the opportunity to actually switch jobs easier because a lot of people who come here through a sponsored company, you're kind of beholden to that company and you, you really don't have the flexibility to move. And what does that do? Well, then the company can really suppress wages because there's no competitive market. Um, also, reunification of families, you know, because there's, an ex there's a backlog in these green cards and families spend a lot of, I mean, decades apart. And so that, that's what I would mean, I think, for the high skill worker, assuming that there is uh, immigration reform in what it kind of looks like, well, what it kind of looked like yesterday. Um, the, the population I'm most concerned about is the low skill worker because I think they're more vulnerable. And they're more vulnerable because they're pretty much invisible. And I see this a lot in my work that I do in schools. You know, you, you, um, I'm, I'm always amazed at the PTA um, uh, clubs, organizations within a predominantly immigrant school versus a school where the parents have higher levels of education. And I was talking to a principal in Dallas, and he said, oh, no, you know, but that's a good thing because I don't have parents coming in here meddling or asking me why I decided to do this. And I'm like, well, that's good for you. But what it does, it's create, it creates even a wider gap between the parent and the child. And for any immigrant, and I'm a child of immigrants, and I can tell you there's an extreme culture clash that happens between the parent and the child. The child then becomes a translator, sometimes becomes the negotiator. And I can tell you that's probably not the best thing to do, to have a teenager negotiating with the principal instead of going directly to the, to the parent. And so I would hope that if we do have immigration reform that allows people to come out of the quote-unquote shadows, that people will take ownership of their, child's, their children's education because I think that education is the best way to integrate our society. If we do not educate, and you know, that's one thing about Texas. We have the kind of Republicans that speak the same language as the Democrats in terms of an educated workforce. And that's a big buzzword, right? That's how we sell. I mean, that's how we used to sell uh, immigration reform in the Dallas Morning News editorial pages. 
educated workforce. But what that means is that you're really integrating people and you're bringing them into the fold and you're giving them ownership, not only of the schools, but of their the education of their child. Um, you know, you're also giving them ownership of the neighborhoods they live in and they won't be afraid to call the cops because they're afraid they may get deported. Um, you also, you know, allow um, people to, to, uh, to families to, to not be uh, uh, split because, for, I mean, under ICE, under Obama, has been deporting 400,000 people a year. And for those 400,000 people are attached to other people, children, parents, you know, and so I think that would allow families to stay intact. And, you know, I think that's also a value that the Republicans like to talk about. Family, and, and this is one way to promote this mm -hmm. nuclear family without breaking them apart, which is what's happening under the current. Would you argue that there is an economic value to that? I mean, for the family itself, yes, it's nice to be together, but for a non-immigrant who just doesn't have a dog in the fight, as we, we say in Texas, is there an economic value to the rest of the community to having intact immigrant families? Well, if you ask the Republicans, they'll tell you that for sure, that there is definitely a value in having intact families. And I think that, you know, I mean, they've, I think anyone would agree that when you have a community that can help you take care of a child, you know, whether it's the grandparents, the parents, you know, you, you're creating healthier individuals. And I don't know how many immigrants I've interviewed that it's just heartbreaking that they've not, they haven't been able to go home to bury a father or a mother. I mean, we don't realize what these immigration laws do uh, and especially after 9-11, people aren't traveling back and forth as much as they used to. And so we take these things for granted that we can actually go to our funerals and say goodbye to our loved ones. But there are millions of people in this country that have been robbed of that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, now, going very specifically to Houston, um, this one is for Angela, which is how has Houston's unique experience with um, immigration, immigrants over the past 20 years. Um, how has that differed, if at all, from other gateway cities? And what does that suggest for Houston if some version of immigration reform passes? Um, is, that, is our experience a positive one, or do we have an Achilles heel in dealing with immigration issues? <clears throat> well, I think that, first of all, Tony, you caught on pretty quick. Just been here a year. You get it. You have to work hard and you belong. That's the formula, right? So when you have a city that fundamentally, the narrative in the city has always been about work and build. That's been our story. And so what's been different mm -hmm. to Claudia's question about Houston from other cities in the country is that this social structure that's based on will you work and what can you contribute and how will you build is a very welcoming structure. And uh, Houston's growth, all of the list we're making now for having recovered the most jobs, for having a standard of living and a cost of living that is so accessible, all of those things that we brag about, that we made the global cities list, the only North American city to do so, all of those things are really products of having been a welcoming environment for immigrants. So we have people coming here continuously planting their dreams in this soil, and this has proven a fertile ground for them to grow. So, and, and then, just so that we're really clear, we talk about immigrants as if we were talking about all this one group of people, they all somehow resembled one another in some way, and they don't, not in any way at all. You can trace the pattern of immigration to Houston by tracing the pattern of unrest and misery around the world. 
So what happens is wherever, if you want to know who's coming, look at where there are the greatest hardships now, where people are suffering the most, where there's the, the deepest desire and the, and the most heartfelt hunger for a better life. That's who will be here next. In some respects, the fight over immigration reform, for me, is a fight over the soul of the country. We may compare it to health care reform, but it's nothing like health care reform. Because everything we stand for and believe about people comes out in our debate over immigration. Do we want the people that will take the chance to build a better life somewhere? Do we want the people here that will work for something different than they were born to? And will they make the sacrifices so their children can have it, even if they know they can't? Do we want those people in Houston? And the answer in Houston has been yes. Now, we haven't been able to get the federal reform that we want to honor the contributions of the people that are here, documented or undocumented. And a, a thing of, of importance to note, every undocumented person, 80% of all people who have documentation issues of any kind, whether they've overstayed a student visa or they came across the river without permission, every one of those people lives in a family, mixed status families, that's what we call them, citizens, not citizens, people in the process, people with no hope people waiting on reform. So I, th I think that the, the example of this city, which is to say what we want to be looking at is what can people do, what will they contribute, what do they mean to accomplish, and let that be the basis for how we structure the laws. So the laws really do reflect the beliefs, the things that we care most about in this country. Our debate doesn't sound like that. And it hurts to hear the way people are talked about when we know those people and we know how much they matter. Um, and I think that's the toughest thing about this debate now is in the space of time that we've been arguing and getting nowhere, people have lived whole lives without seeing their mother's face again. They've lived their adult, they've come of age in a country without being able to bury their aunts and uncles. They've been countryless if they're dreamers because they belong nowhere and they have no country to call their own. So these are real human lives, real deep questions about belonging and meaning and purpose and connection. And so when we argue about immigration reform and when we debate it, we talk about economics and we talk about legalities and we talk about security, we talk about the moral issues and thank God for the faith community that's spoken out uh, in support. Um, we talk about all those things, but really it's the journey of a, a life. It's a, it's, it's a human being making decisions every day about how to care for their family, to be connected to their loved ones. The, the beauty of Houston to me is it's as close to a meritocracy as you can get for a big old sprawling city, right? I mean, you're really here and, and you're assessed on what you can do and what you're willing to contribute. And we, we appreciate those contributions. People do need to be able to come out of the shadows and they want to. I mean, everyone wants to belong and be connected. So um, our laws don't reflect our most deeply held beliefs now. And we have to continue to hope that our laws will reflect the spirit of what happens here in Houston, if you contribute. There's an old saying by a German uh, playwright, I think, who said, we wanted workers 
people came instead. <laughs> and so now we're called to be the best we can be as a country and to embrace the people are here, who are here that we did embrace as workers. That's the thing that, that's the fight that we're having is to live up to that. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about neighborhood centers, which is in the midst of the fight on so many levels, um, really on that human level. And it is really a phenomenally successful human services organization, is, is what, what I was taught to call it. Um, it, is, it is rich. It helps an enormous number of people. And I don't know about rich. Well, for, for a nonprofit, for a nonprofit, it, is, it is, has a lot of funds. It yeah. ma manages a, a really a huge amount of money, and it manages it well, which is why it attracts more. But where I was going with this is, and it has managed it in extremely tough times when funding has fallen away for all sorts of very worthy causes. And what I want to ask you is a little about the, your allies there. Because in Washington, it's Republican versus Democrat. And that is it on this matter. Can you just talk about some of the nuances of the people who have supported you and come on board yeah. successively? Well, I mean, I think Houston's been blessed by people. I always say, if you've got to raise money, right, it's uh, better to raise money from somebody who had to earn it, right? Because they remember when they didn't have any. And if you've been around in Houston, and most people haven't, because 80% of us, I think 70% of the people in the region, we came from somewhere else. But if you've been around for a while, then everybody in Houston that's rich was broke a couple of times. This helps. <laughs> they remember. They understand being broke isn't a, you know, it's not a character flaw. So I think as we go out and we talk about why we want to invest in um, immigrant families, why we want to support workers who are here uh, striving for a better life. I mean, in some deep way, we all know this story. We've lived the story. We, we, we want to be associated with people who are, who are aspiring in that way. So yes, we've gotten support from a lot of people because the big we here is that um, if you're going to keep this a region of opportunity for everyone, you really have to mean it, everyone. Uh, cities that have decided that whole populations could be written off or neighborhoods could be walled off and we could just not do anything about it because it was too hard. Those cities aren't succeeding the way Houston is. And we haven't done that in Houston. We said, it's tough, it's hard. And how do you talk to people about, we used to be afraid of the question, do you serve undocumented immigrants? So here's the answer. Yes, we do. So do you. And we are all served by them. That's the truth. You cannot hide 400,000 people in this region, right? I'm looking at some of our partners out here. Um, so I, there are a lot of nonprofits aligned around capturing um, the, the willing investors, the people who are willing to work with and support these families while we wait for reform. And I think that the surprising thing is we do believe that the debate is all one way or another. It's all red and blue and left and right and anti and, and pro. The truth of the matter is when we talk about what matters most, we're all united about the story of what it means to start with nothing and through your own efforts to build something better for yourselves and your children. We all know that story. And when we're face to face with it, when we're face to face with it, we do the right thing. Now I have a board member that says that sometimes neighborhood centers gets people to support things or write checks for things they wouldn't vote for. Um, 
And uh, I have to say, I, I truly wish I had the skill to get folks to vote for things that they, in fact, support. <laughs> but um, but I, that's not what I do. I think the, uh, but what we see is a real uh, heartfelt empathy about what it means to strive, what it means to, to come with nothing and try to build something better. And that's where the sport comes from. So uh, we built a five-building, four-acre site in the most densely populated neighborhood in Houston, the most diverse neighborhood in Houston, the, the neighborhood with most immigrants in Houston. And um, it's called Baker Ripley because the, the uh, person uh, that the Baker family was enormously helpful and the person who chaired the campaign was Susan Baker. Secretary of State James Baker's wife. So, um, and, and I find that over and over again, people are willing to support and invest in, in, in people who are working hard. So, speaking of images and stereotypes, on the one hand, there is, I think, there is a kind of um, time-worn American image of the, the hard-working American immigrant. But there's also um, a stereotype of, of a newcomer who can't assimilate, who is uneducated and can't get more educated, and his or her kids live on uneducated, um, perhaps bringing corruption and habits of corruption from um, whatever developing country they're coming from, but uh, i.e. Mexico. Is, is there reality in that? Can you talk a little bit about uh, these ideas of assimilation and, um, and stagnation from your research? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is a very controversial question, and I think it's a very interesting one because in the social sciences, <clears throat> those uh, hypotheses have been disproven for a long time. Um, let me give you a, just a couple of examples. Number one, immigrants work very, very hard, and it's been a long time since that uh, discourse, that narrative, that the lazy Mexican under the cactus, uh, you know, taking a nap in the afternoons, that's not the case at all. It, that we know that immigrants today open most of the new businesses in this country. They come in, they're entrepreneurial, they work very hard, long hours, and sometimes for very little money. So they add value to our economy. Who wants to pay $5 for a pound of tomatoes? We don't. We like to pay the 30 cents or 40 cents or, or a dollar, whatever it is. <clears throat> so we, we need that labor. That's one thing. And, and I think that that, that narrative has, been, has gone by the wayside. We now know that people who speak two or more languages are actually people who are able to think logically and process things better. It is an advantage to actually think in two or three or four different languages. We know that cognitively there are advantages to this. So it is, it is great. I think it's a mistake for a lot of immigrants to try to assimilate quickly or get their children to assimilate and not learn their other uh, uh, native language or their mother tongue. I think it's important that they, they, they try to do that. So evidence is coming out right and left. Now, if that's not enough, let's appeal to self-interest. When Social Security was created in this country, there were 60 workers for every retiree. Today, there are between two and three workers for every retiree. Who's going to pay for the Social Security? Who's going to pay for the check? Maybe you, you'll, you'll get to that if you're you know, in your 50s or 60s, and you will get a check. But if you're in your 30s or 40s like me, you will not get a check. You may, you may have to take a cut. It may be a 50% of what you expected, even though we are contributing quite a bit to that tax bill. Well, what's going to happen? Who's going to pay for that? 
We know the shifting demographics. And by the way, talking about that, Mexico, the great wave of Mexican migration is over. Mexico is now at 2.1 children per woman. That's barely at replacement level. The Mexican population is flattening out, and it's likely to start declining in the future. It'll be Central Americans now. And in the future, Mexico will probably compete with the United States for Central American labor. So it's the, the, the wheels are turning. Time is, the times are changing. It's time, I think, for us to begin to think about an immigration reform that will, be, that will make it attractive for these people to actually come, because I think that time is over. The next wave may come from Asia and Africa, not Latin America. So things are changing very quickly. I think we better fix that. Unfortunately, as I, as I think uh, two or three of us have said, we're not that optimistic that Congress can do the right thing. Uh, the, the gridlock, the polarization on this matter, and all the different tricks that they're setting up uh, to get the immigration reform bill to fail along the way somewhere. Uh, you know, we've all seen that little, when I teach American government politics, I show that little YouTube uh, video on Bill, the, the little Bill wrapped up and he goes up yeah. on Capitol Hill, <laughs> and how the, the Bill, and I show it to the students because there are many, many, many places along the chain where the Bill can die. And I think that it's dangerous. It's not, it's not assured. And I think, you know, we're kind of wavering. We're more pessimistic today than we were two weeks ago. But I think uh, maybe things will change. We know that they did overnight after the November election, and things got really good. Uh, now we're a little bit more pessimistic because there's all kinds of uh, people tugging at the bill. Uh, perhaps something else will change in a month or two, and it'll make it possible to just get it through. But right now, it's all uncertain. Mm -hmm. um, another, um, a another conversation that often springs up from opponents of immigration reform is the relatively low educational level of Mexicans in particular who come here, although it is not very different from the Eastern Europeans who came here back in the day. Uh, and for Macarena, you spend a lot of time in American schools among immigrants, and I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about the relationship of parents' educational levels to their kids' educational levels. As we just said, not all immigrants are Latino. Um, what are some of the patterns that you see and how, how might they be changed for better or worse by reform? You talked about the engagement with the, um, the parents on the principal side. How about for immigrants themselves? I think across the board, any study you look at shows that educational attainment of the parent predicts educational attainment of the child. Um, and so no matter what you look at, the, I mean, it, it even, uh, it even uh, how many jobs your parents work dictates whether they're going to sit around and talk, give you SAT vocabulary at the dinner table versus, you know, I'm rushing out, microwave your dinner, and I'll see you tomorrow morning. You know, so even the amount of time that's monopolized for parents and whether they can be, because they have to work, whether they can be at home, um, affects, you know, the, whether they can sit down and do homework with the child. And obviously, if you're talking about immigrant parents, my father had a second grade education. My mother had a fifth grade education. They were from rural Mexico. They didn't have the same opportunities, obviously, that we do when we come here. But what happens, and what I've seen happen a lot in the schools, is that there is this really big miscommunication between schools, between districts, and the parents, specifically the parents that they should be targeting. In this case, immigrant parents, or low uh, uh, working class parents, or um, parents that don't have a college degree. 
And a lot of the times it's because parents don't have any buy-in and the schools don't realize that they really need to, you know, step it up and make sure that they don't just send these translated forms from English to the parents' house without any context. And sometimes these forms, you know, oh, you should make your child go to bed early because they're going to take the standardized test the next morning. But if the parent doesn't even know that if they don't pass this state exam, they may not graduate. If they don't graduate, they can't get go to college. I mean, there's so many... So many, um, it's, I mean, really complex even for, for a highly educated parent to navigate the school system, much less someone whose worldview looks so different than the expectations of the American educational system. And you're also talking about parents where that had kind of accepted limitations, like my parents. They grew up in rural Mexico, in Nuevo Leon. There was a school. They only went up to fifth grade. And if you were a girl, because it was a very traditional household my mother grew up in, it's like, yeah. Thank God, you know, you're fifth grade, that's good enough because you're going to get married anyway. So one of the conversations that I wish happened between the schools and the parents is just even translating the value system. The value system in Mexico, specifically in the value system in the U.S. and how that doesn't translate. And you're, you're operating with two completely different systems that a lot of the times the parents haven't been, um, haven't been encouraged or or even made feel empowered to embrace. You know, I know so many parents are like, oh no, the teacher's no more. And it's like, no, you, you, can, you can advocate for your child. Mm -hmm. And the schools that I have seen be successful, the schools that, and there's a lot of schools that have parents even volunteer and come and, and, and you know, kind of give them ownership some other way, because then they're more likely to talk to the teacher that they may not be as comfortable calling over the phone. Mm -hmm. um, this is so interesting to me, and I just wanted to emphasize something you said, that the best predictor of educational attainment of a child is the parent's educational attainment and economic attainment. And there's, I think there is a lot of mythology about values and a culture that values education, but the cultures that value education come from economic systems that reward it directly. And I, these, are, these are learned values and learned skills, and I'm just glad that you brought that one up. Did you have a, do you want to jump in on that? No, I was just thinking about uh, Professor Kleinberg at uh, Rice University at the Kinder Institute who's talked a lot about this issue. And we, sometimes we'll talk about, I hear this happen in Texas all the time. You know, let's talk about educational attainment among Latinos and, and Latinos aren't graduating from college and et cetera, et cetera. So it gets a little irritating though because I actually look at those numbers and yes, a bunch of them have not graduated from college because in fact they're under 18. They're not going to college yet. So, and the truth of the matter is, as he studied it, yes, uh, what happens is the first generation, like many of us, our parents didn't have the opportunity. They may not have graduated from high school and they may not have gone to college, but we did. And exactly the same thing is happening. It's been going on for a couple hundred years in this country. Yes, people start off here. They work very hard. They get the message that the ticket forward it has to do with education. And, and entrepreneurship, they start buying those tickets and then their children live a different life. So we have to look at things. When we start talking about, well, we have to be worried because immigrants don't have the same educational attainment yet. Yeah. Just put yet on the end. And I think that, and I think it's valid to think, you asked, do we have an Achilles heel? Yeah, if we start thinking that immigrants don't have educational attainment because somehow they don't quite get it or they maybe, um, you know, aren't properly 
uh, organized around this issue. Yeah, because we, we, we're believing that somehow these are, folks are different than everybody who's ever come here ever before. But this is that why can't I, be true. This mm -hmm. is why so. I think that we need to make sure that we sort out the myths from the facts. Yeah. In regard to educational attainment, I can tell you that the wave of Mexican migration, for example, has already been uh, in this country, f uh, been around in this country for about, I guess, 65, for about 40, 40 to 50 years or so. We're already on the third generation, and I can tell you by the time that the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren are in this country, they're just as lazy and fat and, <laughs> and educated and good and bad as any American. I think the evidence shows... <laughs> no, I mean, in, in, in the sense that they acquire all the good, but also all the bad, including the bad habits of any American. Well, I mean, in the, what I mean is, is they acquire the good and the bad, including the diet, the habits, the drug-consuming habits, the educational attainment, everything good and bad, it comes, because there's all kinds of people here, work, hardworking, lazy, and so forth. So the... the um, the, that generation adjusts. So I think that what is going on with the immigration debate today, and we see it in the hearings, in the debates online, in the blogs, is that there is a lot of trash being circulated that has to do with prejudices against darker people, against less educated, against people who are not quite, don't, they don't quite fit in the, in, the, in the mainstream of society. No one should expect a first-generation immigrant to fit quite that way. There's so much of it is just emotional stuff being circulated, partly prejudices, partly ignorance, and, and all that. And I think the research is already there. Mm -hmm. we, we're just not giving it to these Congress members and senators who are debating this bill who cannot understand that we have enough evidence to show them that they're wrong and that yeah. the stuff. When I hear that some of those I'm going to jump in a second. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. So, but I do want to say lazy, uh, sedentary is perhaps a better word <laughs> because there is very good evidence to indicate the second generation is more sedentary. Yes. The second generation's lifespan is lower than that of their parents. Foreign-born people cross the board, but specifically Latinos live three years longer than the native-born Americans. And this, this is a, a stunning finding that foreign-born um, Latina women have lower infant mortality than the mothers of non-Hispanic non Caucasian women. So this isn't, is it not just kind of romantic hyperbole about foreigners. There, there's something that happens when you become an American um, or live in the United States that is bad for the health, but is extraordinary for the spirit because foreign-born Latinos also have a significantly higher optimism rate about the fate of this country than we uh. grumpy. Native-born here. <laughs> it's such an incredibly important point to make. I think one of the things we, when we talk about culture and immigration, and we talk about education, assimilation, all of those terms, most of us are referencing in some way an older story about immigration. The older story of the late 1800s, early 1900s, when people came here and everything was stripped away. And part of that was because they weren't going back. There was nothing to go back to, and they were never going to have the opportunity, many of them, ever to go home again. So what's, I think there is a different immigrant formula. And when you were asking about Houston standing out, this is what I see that is really a, a kind of delightful strength of this city. The, the, the equation here works like this. It's economic and political assimilation. 
And because people want a voice and they, and they want to work and they want the fruits of that. So that's where assimilation is being sought. But cultural independence, and that's not cultural isolation. It's not about people saying, I'm of Indian descent and I only want to associate with people of Indian descent. It's people, I think we have something like 125,000 people of Indian descent in this region. And, and it's the, the Indian community saying, what we really want is economic and cultural, uh, economic and political assimilation, but we want to celebrate our culture and we want to share it. So if you just go online and look up cultural associations in Houston, you're just going to scroll through page after page after page. And this is across the city, this wonderful sort of fabric where people are keeping alive the best of what they brought with them and adopting what they came for. And I, I, wanna, I do want to say this about education. For 30 years, I've worked in low-income communities. I've worked in an organization completely devoted to aspiring individuals. And I have never, ever met a parent that when asked, what is it you most want for your child? They did not start with, I want them to have a good education. Wherever they've come from, however educated or not they may be, this is every parent. I mean, what parent doesn't want that? So I think the, there is no difference. There's nothing, you know, we haven't changed as a species when we no longer have interest in seeing our offspring gain knowledge and wisdom and, and, and a thinking ability so they navigate the world. This is every parent's dream for their child, everywhere for a very long time, right? Yeah, yes, indeed. And, and you know fact, this. Well, Stephen Kleinberg taught <laughs> yes. me this. So Stephen Kleinberg, if the name comes up a lot, there's a reason. He's the bard of Houston demographics and has been predicting this moment for 30 years. But he also points out that actually there's research among different immigrant groups. What, where, how do you value education? It is equal. Educational attainment is a different ball of wax, but the value is the same. And I want to give Macarena the... Um, the the last few minutes on this, and we've got three minutes left, and speaking of ye olde Europe, you spend a lot of time there, and often you, go, you say that you go there and you're kind of depressed about the United States and our, um, our interactions with the foreign-born, and then you change your mind. I'm not the most patriotic person. I don't know if that comes across when I speak, but um, when I'm in Europe, I do get a sense of like, wow, you know, and it's great to be part of a country that even if they, we don't always embrace our immigration history and sometimes we treat immigration like it's an autoimmune disorder, you know, um, we still are way ahead of the conversation than yes. Germany. I mean, the Germans yes. brought Turks to Germany around the same time that we were having our Bracero program in the U.S. And it's, you know, we called for workers, but people came and they didn't realize that these people were going to have children. They were going to buy a house. In the case of the U.S., it's not so much that easy in, in Europe. Yes. Um, and, and it's the same, same, same conversation. It's all, a lot of it is based on fear. They're gonna change what it means to be German. What is an American? They're gonna, they're changing, they don't wanna get educated, which is, I agree with you, a big myth, you know, because I've spoken to Turkish immigrants who say the same thing that I've heard from Mexican parents. I want my kid to have a better job than the one I had. Or my father would say, I want you to be able to work in an air-conditioned building, yeah. you know? And, and um, they're changing our neighborhoods, they're, you know, challenging the system, they're corrupt, they're, you know, 
And it's, to me, it's really fascinating to see that this is a global conversation. And in terms of the global conversation, the U.S. is way farther ahead. And I've been at conferences where I'm the one challenging and my French counterparts or my German counterparts are like, oh, well, that's a little, you know. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't feel like I have to censor myself, but it's, a, it's interesting that you feel like whatever I'm saying is, is something I probably shouldn't say out loud because at least in this country, I feel like I can have an opinion and, and, and voice it. So this, this, these forums are great, a great opportunity for that. Okay, and on that very note of having an opinion and voicing it, perhaps there is someone here who has a different opinion and would like to voice it. Yes, uh, we're now going to move on and take questions from all of you. I disagree with a lot of what you're saying up here today. Mm -hmm. And where I draw the line is because I disagree, I have good reasons, but not because I'm prejudiced. And you guys always throw the prejudice cards. It's ridiculous to use that. If your facts don't back up what you're saying, why do you have to do? That's my question. Why has it got to be prejudice? Why can't I just disagree with you? I didn't make the comment about prejudice, but I'm happy to take that question because I've taken that question about 10,000 times and I'm all right with it. Um, I think, here's the deal. The U.S. is not great because we're perfect. And we're not, we're not different than the rest of the world because we've figured out immigration and gotten it right. In fact, some people joke about us and say, after we've done everything the wrong way, we finally do it the right way. So there is a lot of room in this discussion about the how and what. How do we get to a good immigration reform bill? Lots of room for discussion. About what it should look like, we can differ all day long. Where I think we are united, and I suspect that we would be if we talked, is around the why. Why do we want, why do we struggle and debate and argue so much about this? And I maintain it's because it may be the most important conversation we have as a country. Because it's a question of who do we want, who belongs, who matters, who gets the privilege of citizenship. So, so what I find, if, and, and, and really so many of these conversations, is that if we talk, we will disagree on how and what. We will not disagree on why. We won't disagree on why it's so important. This is another aspect of that. Um, there is bias. Because sometimes in the debate, if I want you to change your mind, I can hold out, I can, I can scare you. And I can point to someone not like you and say, be afraid of them. They're not like you. And so that bias comes up in these arguments. And so it's fair for people to say, sometimes it's bias. But I will go back and say that a lot of the times we're fighting over how and what, and we're agreeing on why. And so I, I think the, the, the battle in DC right now is all about that. It's how and what and when and who. But Ask yourself this question. Why is this the central, most important question in this country? And it's because we are a nation really defined by ideas. The idea of capitalism and democracy as being the best way for, to realize human potential. We're not Germans. We're not French. I mean, I, I completely agree. Go to any place else in the world, run home, and be happy for this ugly, messy, terrible, horrendous fight we're having here. Because at the heart of it is a country that cares deeply, deeply about keeping this a place of opportunity for people. 
So we just don't agree on how. We don't agree on how right now. I just want to say something so. about that. I, I want to be clinical about the prejudice issue. I, I don't think it's a, a, a characteriological failure or a moral failure. People are prejudiced because they are fearful. Fear is a political idea, and it gets exploited every single time. And politicians are perfect to exploit fear as an idea. Fear of what? Fear of difference. And segregation in this country is a prime example that we have always been afraid of, the, of difference. When, when desegregation was brought in in the country, uh, uh, the, the non-minority population moved to the suburbs and abandoned the core of almost every single American city. Detroit, I mean, everywhere. Uh, I think that the value of Houston is actually people don't do that. That's a great difference about Houston. It's sort of counterintuitive. It does the opposite. But there's another fear, uh, before I conclude, and that is resources. It's about resources. It's about who gets what, when, and how. The famous political science definition by uh, Harold Laswell, a political scientist, it's about who's going to enjoy the privileges of a social security, who's going to pay taxes, who's going to get what, who's not going to get what. And many of the immigrants are an easy target for not getting anything. Part of the great debate on the immigration bill today is about whether immigrants are going to have access to health care they're likely not going to have access to any health care because it's a scarce resource, it's expensive, and we're going to reserve it for the old, the established citizens, and the immigrants aren't going to get any of it. That's a debate. So it's really not a moral issue. I'm not accusing anybody of saying you're fundamentally flawed as a human being because you're prejudiced. I'd rather deep, uh, go deeper, dig deeper, and find out exactly why people become prejudiced. And what scares me about how nasty sometimes the conversation can get is, and I can probably summarize it in, in a quote from a mother that I interviewed in Dallas. She said, Estamos creando una generación de resentidos. We're creating a generation of resentful Americans. Because most people are not, we're not going to deport anyone. And most of these kids that are going through the school districts that can watch the news and can hear some of the crazy stuff that people say, like Bill O'Reilly calling uh, immigrants biological weapons of mass destruction, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, these are messages that these kids who are yeah. Americans are hearing. And I think in the long term, that affects the integration. And it affects the way we see each other. And when we, whether we feel we could have a coffee or a beer together, you know? I remember speaking about five years ago at a middle school, and, and it was a really an ugly period in our conversation around immigration. And I think I'm talking with children about, um, you know, the realities of, of, of immigration reform and, and, and trying to give a middle school level discussion of this, right? And so I pause and I say, tell me what you think. And a child raised his hand and he said to me, I just need to know one thing. Why do they hate my parents? So I think that, you know, 70% of the people in this country agree on about four of the major pieces that would constitute comprehensive immigration reform. 70%. We agree. And we can't get it done because people scream and holler on each end and vilify one another and point fingers 
And the 70% in the middle, we don't make enough sound to be heard and to hold people accountable. And that's the painful part. It's not that we might disagree on, on, on the, the timing or the, what the path should look like. That's not the problem. The problem is for the big things, we're in agreement and we can't get it. We can't, that's the question we should be asking ourselves. When we agree, we can't get it. Why? Why can't we? Nathaniel Tarlow, uh, I want to talk to you all about a perhaps underappreciated element of the immigrant struggle, and that is that many people are arrested, which only yeah. requires a proof level of probable cause to be arrested. But right. once you're arrested, that's it for many people. The second they're booked into jail, whereas the rest of us are able to get a bond and go back to work the next day, these people are going on the ride all the way back to their country of origin. Yeah. So what efforts are you all, as advocates for immigration reform, making in a legislative context, in a context of reaching out to the judiciary to stop the process of the state judicial system being used really as a backdoor tool of the federal deportation machine? What efforts are you all making to make sure that the judiciary and the legislature are made aware of the anguish that, as, as Macarena pointed out, is caused to these people's children when the main breadwinner is in the car with the wrong person, is arrested, yeah. and is deported for something that really isn't a crime or something he didn't even do. Well, what are you doing and what is your plan to address this issue? <laughs> Angela? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, again, I think the, oh gosh, I, I, the uh, worst moments of my working life have been sitting with um, a young man who was scheduled for deportation. And he was, he um, is 24 years old, and when um, he got picked up and was found not to have the proper documentation or any identification because he came here, floated across the river in a truck tire when he was a year old. And um, so sitting with him and him going to a deportation hearing, which uh, and the judge said, okay, you don't have an attorney. You're obviously not prepared for this. You get another nine months. Go find some money. Hire yourself an attorney. Very expensive. Come in here. Come back. So what we do, because the only options for those young people now are some public campaign that says, please don't do this, because the judge can completely do this. And, we, you know, if you're asking me, what am I doing? I can't stop a judge from enforcing a law that's on the books that says he can deport this person. So the advocacy comes from either organizing some public support or finding, um, in this case, deferred action came between the first hearing and the second hearing. The judge chose, when this young man went back before the court, to consider that this was a case that should fall under deferred action for childhood arrivals. So the president's action allowed this young man now to proceed to be here in a legal way and become in some way able to live his life out in the country, the only countries he's known since he was a year old. So there are um, estimated 70,000, I think, in this region of people in that predicament. And, um, you know, if you ask me what I'm doing, I think that I, I think we work every single day to help people find a way forward, if there is one, 
if there's not, we help them make decisions so they don't close the door on a future opportunity. And those are services that we provide through the organization I work for. The advocacy has got to be done by all of us. There's not a single person. Every single person in this room has got to do something to get immigration reform. That's the real answer. So, I mean, uh, you know. That's right. And <laughs> My name is Jesse Gradington III. I'd just like to thank Zocalo and thank you all for your time for talking about this. I'm somebody who's undecided on the issue, so it's very interesting to hear your perspectives. My question kind of centers around the name, and I may have got this wrong, but what immigration reform means to Houston. Um, what I've heard about the past and what Kleinberg predicted for the next 30 years, but what does it mean if immigration reform does get passed? What does that mean to Houston? What does that mean to the US? That was something I didn't really hear. Let's think a little bit about, about numbers then, because uh, even though I don't want to get hung up on the numbers, they are complicated. Uh, it is estimated that uh, the contributions of undocumented workers uh, in Texas, the, the economic uh, production, is around $65 billion in the state. Uh, if you think that Houston has a third, almost a third of all immigrants, there's probably a good 15 to $20 billion of economic activity in Houston, the metropolitan region, that, that is attributable to immigrants. And they produce uh, a pretty good chunk of cash in terms of everything they buy, just like you and, and, and I do. Uh, it, we pay 8.25% in sales tax. They pay too. They, there is a, also a myth that immigrants do not pay income tax. Those immigrants that are in somebody's payroll are paying income tax. They don't file on April 15th. And so the IRS reports that there's always six, seven, eight billion dollars a year that should have gone back to the taxpayers if they had filed because they were entitled to that. They didn't make enough money to pay or they made very little money, so they were entitled to a refund, but they don't, rec they don't claim that money. So that money stays in our coffers in Washington, D.C. And they, so they, they, they pay taxes on everything they consume. They pay taxes on everything. They, they really do, and I think that there isn't... Um, so to me, bringing these people from the shadows, integrating them into society, giving them the opportunity to buy homes, to pay interest on mortgages, to pay property taxes, to do that would only revitalize the economy. I think it's long, long past that time when we thought that immigrants were a burden to society and that they didn't contribute at all and they were actually taking more than they were putting in. It is well established, almost any decent economist will tell you today that they put in billions and billions and billions of dollars in what they do. They open businesses, they buy homes, they pay taxes, they pay sales tax, they contribute, and sometimes they don't take. Why don't they take, to finish my answer to your question? They do not qualify for unemployment compensation, so they don't take that. They don't qualify for food stamps, they don't take that. They don't qualify for Social Security supplemental income. They don't take that. They don't take anything. And in fact, legal resident, legal immigrants do not qualify for any of these things for the first five years. We put in plenty for the first five years and cannot get anything. So in the end, they're actually a net plus to the economy, to Texas, to Houston, and to the U.S. 
Yeah, Texas did a, the Perryman report out of, I think, A&M, and it said it, it, absent the immigrants, undocumented immigrants in Texas, if we created the same kind of hostile environment and they all left, that 16 business sectors in the state would be severely adversely affected. So I think it's really, it's, it's about people coming, workers coming out of the shadows, being able to appropriately participate in, um, and, and, you know, the, the, we, and we've known this for a long time. These numbers have been in a long time. These reports have been out again and again and again. So I want to just come back to the same question. Knowing this, with the numbers that say what they say, seeing what we see, why can't we, with a bunch of Americans agreeing on this, why can't we get what we ask it, what we're asking for out of D.C.? Very important question. There is a book uh, named Immigrants and Boomers by Dal Myers that talks about as the boomers are getting ready to retire, and in many cases they will retire early, especially in the health field, that even if you legalized every undocumented person that there is in this country, over 12 million, there would still not be enough to cover the jobs that are going to be left vacant, number yep. one. Number two is he's saying that for the first time in the history of this country, those jobs that are going to be left vacant are uh, highly skilled jobs. And so the concern then becomes how are we working as well to make sure that uh, young adults are getting the high skills they need to get into those, those prepared jobs. So it's an economic question as well. Uh, plus, at the same time that we're toughening on our immigration laws, there are other countries, European countries, that are relaxing their laws yeah. to make sure that the highly educated people from Mexico or other countries are going to Spain and going to other countries to take those high-skilled jobs. So I'm just curious exactly as to right. that Yeah, that Greater point. Houston Partnership has been embarked, just embarked on a conversation about that very thing. And the discussion was, you know, if you're looking at, at the companies in Houston that are high, having to hire, are needing to hire highly skilled workers, particularly engineering, math, science, all of that, they're getting more of them out of state than they would like. And they're really, as a region, we're really competing with other countries who are doing exactly as you said, I think Spain, in the time since we actually did any meaningful immigration reform in the U.S., Spain has modified its immigration laws about 14 times. So, and, and it's in recognition of this evolving mobile globalization, this, this hugely migratory moment in human history. I mean, it, we're living in a, a very fluid world, and, and to imagine that you can have a law that you put in place 15, 20 years ago, and it should still work, that doesn't make any sense. So you're, that conversation's going on in Houston, and I think that's one of the things that distinguishes this region, again, is looking at that squarely in the face and saying, now what do we do? There's been a conversation in other cities that almost sounds like, well, if we just had a better group of people, right. we could be like Houston. <laughs> and, the, and the deal is, we've got the people. And it's will we make the educational investments in those folks to close the gap between where they are and what will be needed for the economy that we're growing? And I think we will. I, I don't think it will be easy. I think, but Houston tackles hard things. That's what we do. On behalf of Grupo Salinas and Fundación Azteca America, I want to thank the panelists and, of course, the great moderator and the, the group that's here. But I really, you know, obviously this is the civil rights issue of our time. And so obviously there's a bill in the Senate there's a bill in the House. I want to get your thoughts, your perspective on what you think about these bills. I know I have my thoughts and my ideas about it. 
um, but I wanted to hear your opinion on it. And obviously, you know, what we're doing here in Texas to push our legislators back in Washington, D.C. to make sure that something passes this year. Because we all know that if it doesn't pass this year, then it probably, you know, won't pass for a long time. So, um, so that's a two-part question. First, what's standing now in the Senate and the House, and obviously what we're doing here at home to push. That's why Sokolo and Aztec America is here, although we're from Los Angeles and other places, but we're here to try and push this issue forward in Texas specifically. So again, thank you for being here. Thank you for joining this discussion. I think it's very important. And I said, this is the civil rights issue of our time. So thank you for collaborating and being part of it. The Senate bill uh, is an interesting bill. It obviously stands on several pillars. Uh, to summarize it very quickly, what to do about the undocumented population within the United States. Who knows how many there are, 10 to 12 million, estimated 11 or so. Uh, we're deporting 400,000 of them every year, so who knows how many after so many years of uh, relentless deportations. Um, the, uh, it, and also self-deportation. A lot of people just can't stand it anymore. And Mexico is beginning to see a lot of return, uh, return people that are just sort of packing up and leaving. Many of the Mexican schools in Tijuana and Juarez and other places, in Leon and other places, are beginning to see children who are U.S. citizens born here, but they're beginning to be enrolled in schools there because they can't stand it anymore. They can't live here. Or their parents are deported and they're moving there. Mexico is actually having a problem having to accommodate these kids that do not speak Spanish very well. So they're having to now, you know, they're, and there's thousands of them. They're all of a sudden are enrolling in the Mexican schools and they're having these problems. Um, and, and there's been all kinds of, uh, 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 you know, reporting on that. Uh, the other thing is uh, the, uh, the uh, documented workers, and it, it plugs in very well to what you, uh, what you asked. 80 million baby boomers will retire. The first one of them retired in 2006. After that, 80 million over, uh, over 20 years. By 2026, we'll have 80 million retirees on top of the ones that are already retired because, and we're retired because we're living to 90, 85, 90, 95 years of age. So there'll be 100, 120 million retirees in this country. Who's gonna pay for the social security? Who's gonna take care of them, especially if they're ill in their homes? Who's gonna help them, right? That, that is a very serious demographic problem that we have not yet anticipated. So how are we going to attract the workers when Mexico is beginning to de decrease in population in Latin America and so forth? That's a very serious issue that is coming up. And then the other, uh, the, uh, the other uh, what I think is border security, which to me is, is a red herring, uh, the border counties, and I can tell you coming from El Paso, are some of the safest counties in this country. El Paso over and over and over labeled by the FBI the first, second, and third safest city. So is San Diego. Of course, the rural counties have a problem because the migrants tend to use these, these areas, these isolated areas between ports of entry, and people obviously fear uh, these migrants walking through there. Uh, but the murder rate in this country on the border counties, 16 in Texas, 4 in New Mexico, 4 in Arizona, and 2 in California are among the safest regions in this country. Thank you. Yes. I want to jump in because Angela is also tracking this minutely. Yeah, I think... Um, First, I think you're, if I can relate to one part of your question was, what is Texas doing? What is Houston doing? And I, I don't know that I would lump Houston with Texas, but I think Houston from the Greater Houston Partnership, the faith community, the nonprofit community, 
Every dimension of civic life here has produced a leader in some form or another, and we've joined together, and we've been together, and we've talked together, and we've raised money together. We, ha we are regularly in the presence of elected officials from other states because we're writing checks because we believe they're doing the right thing on immigration. We've got to have immigration reform. What's there now is by no means perfect. If you really look at what we're going to require of people in order to earn their way to legal status, much less citizenship. It's arduous, it's difficult, it's expensive, and it's going to be a narrow aperture, and there are a lot of people here now that won't fit through it. So the question on the table, really, and the debate right now is going on. We, we thought there was the 60 votes that would keep it the filibuster away, that we'd get a bill, that it may not be perfect, and we were absolutely thinking, you know, not perfect is better than nothing. But uh, the information today is not very positive, and I, we can hope that the information tomorrow will be better, but it seems to be unraveling. And the fight has been for more funds to be spent on security, and, um, and I, you know, we're already committed somewhere in the 4 to $5 billion range with a caveat that says if we don't do certain things that that number will even increase. You know, we're, we look at what makes this country not safe, and I think you look at it for two seconds and you realize we're building the wrong fence in the wrong place. But if you put that aside and you say, okay, let's fund security, whatever it might look like, we're still left with the question of whether or not there's a path to citizenship. And some people on this side are not going to support a bill where there's no hope for citizenship. Some people on this side aren't going to support anything where there's any opportunity. So I think it turns on citizenship, whether the underlying principles are going to be about family unity. I think Houston has done a lot, spent a lot of money to plead with our elected officials to please stand up and do the right thing. So I think we study what's going on in DC now, and we look to see who has the courage to figure something out and move it forward. I don't think anybody, I hope, there's no one that really believes we'll be better off with nothing. <coughs> Because that, that just can't, that's not a tenable position for this country to continue to have. If we still want to be that place, um, that really special place where people come to plant their aspirations and dreams. And I, I think we do want that. So there's a lot to fight for, but the calls need to go to D.C. We, we need to pay attention every single day because it's moving every day back and forth. With that, that's an excellent place to end. Thank you so much. <laughs>